don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall, and my reading obsession in 2020 was uh, Giovanni Boccaccio's The Decameron. Boccaccio started working on it in 1348, right after Florence got hit bad by the Black Death Plague, uh, which, you know, let's just say pandemonium, death, and disease hit the city. Uh, But this book is just amazing. It's about a group of young people retreating to the country together and telling stories that are wild. They're about being in love with life. They're about all the ways that people trick each other and um, fool each other and um, take care of each other. And, you know, of course, it's in this backdrop of how people survive in the face of a pandemic. Uh, so this week, to talk about this amazing book, uh, we are having on Professor Massimo Riva. He is a professor at Brown. He is also uh, the founder of the Decameron Web and a scholar of this book, and uh, help, here to help us decode reading such a relevant classic today. Uh, so without any further introduction, um, this is a great discussion. I can't wait for you to hear it. Here is Massimo Riva. Massimo Riva, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. So, The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, written a long time ago, has been one of my uh, 2020 COVID era obsessions, just because um, I found in the framing of the story of life was falling apart in Florence because of the plague, and people went away together to tell stories and to basically quarantine. Um, And um, I was wondering, you know, Obviously, I understand why it uh, is resonating with a lot of people today, but I was wondering if you could provide some of the historical context of how this classic uh, came about in uh, Plague uh, Italy. Yes. Um, Well, perhaps uh, it would be useful to start with some biographical information about uh, Boccaccio himself. And Giovanni Boccaccio was born in Certaldo or Florence. Certaldo is a town near Florence. In 1313, uh, he was the legitimate son of a merchant, Boccaccino da Chellino, and he died in 1375. So he lived through most of the calamitous 14th century, as the popular historian uh, Barbara Tuckman calls it, along with famine and pestilence. The 1300s uh, also saw the emergence of a new mercantile class, especially in Tuscany. And along with it, the rise of a new humanistic view of life. And Florence was the center of a new civic pride and a new passion for the classical world, ancient Rome and Greece, seen as models to be imitated. And like many merchants, Boccaccio's father traveled widely. Um, records show that he was in Paris, for example, where he was rumored he had an affair with a noblewoman, a king's daughter, and Giovanni was supposedly born of this union. This was a romantic invention, and Giovanni's real mother was most likely a humble woman from Florence or Certaldo, perhaps even a servant in Boccaccino's household. 
Yet, uh, notwithstanding his legitimate birth, Giovanni was always considered a member of Boccaccino's family. His stepmother, Margherita, who later died in the plague, was a distant relative of Dante's muse, Beatrice, before Coportinelli. So in his youth, Giovanni received a solid education and he followed his banker father as an apprentice on his business ventures, in particular on an important mission to the Angevin court of King Robert in Naples. This was in uh, 1327, when Giovanni was only 14. And in Naples, he spent the best years of his life. During the day, he would tend to his father's banco, or money changer desk, from which the word bank. He was also able to observe the bustling coming and going of the most diverse and often bizarre characters populating that extraordinary city. Uh, one of the most hilarious stories in the Decameron is set in Naples. It is a story of a young man from Umbria, uh, in central Italy, who travels to Naples in order to sell some horses. And because of his naivete, falls into a trap set by a beautiful woman who pretends to be his un unknown sister. He's robbed of his money purse, stripped naked, and goes on to survive through a series of frightening misadventures during a long night spent uh, in the Neapolitan underworld. In the end, however, he retrieves his money thanks to a series of lucky circumstances and finally becomes wiser or quick-witted. He learned his lesson. In Naples, in his leisure time, Boccaccio also mingled with the Neapolitan elites in the gardens of the royal palace and found time uh, to complete his education in King Robert's uh, extraordinary library, one of the richest in Europe, bankrolled by the same Florentine bankers Boccaccio and his father worked for. Later in life, Giovanni idealized this golden period of his youth, and especially the hours he spent reading French romances and writing a series of poetic works inspired by them, dedicating them to the noble women he flirted with, an idyllic scene that he effectively recreated in the so-called frame story of the Cameron. However, all this was lost because of an indiscretion. And as an aspiring Man of letters and poet, Giovanni proclaimed and advertised a little too fervently his love for a relative of the king, Maria d'Aquino, transfigured as Fiammetta. A faux pas that cost him dearly as he had to leave Naples in disgrace and go back to Florence in 1340-41, just in time to see the city ravaged by a first wave of the plague that killed a sixth of its inhabitants, a sneak preview of the major outbreak of 1348. 1348, in which several members of Boccaccio's household perished and the very fabric of city life was reduced to tatters. And this is also the backdrop of the Decameron. Yeah, I remember, you know, almost getting goosebumps in reading that framing when he described the city of Florence, because the plague hit on so many levels of you know, people dying in the streets, the, the ravages to health, but also you know, talking about the chaos that ensued, all of the societal um, mores and um, agreements that fell apart in the wake of the devastation. And uh, I was wondering what you thought about that and how that changes the framing of these. Is this, it almost felt like a time capsule where he was talking about a world that was disappearing or um, didn't exist during this plague or, uh, um, you know, what is, what is the... In, the play between what's happening outside the world of these stories told in the book and um, as in the plague and inside them. Right. So, you know, there, there is no doubt that many people like you have picked up the Cameron 
in the past months because of COVID and its parallels with the early modern pandemic, you know, the Black Death uh, also came from China, also uh, was caused by a, uh, a pathogen jumping from an animal to a human and, uh, you know, spread along the mercantile routes, so in the early age of globalization, if you wish, and so on and so forth. And of course, uh, the uh, analogy with the lockdown, uh, and many of us have experienced, you know, the similarity with the uh, situation that the, the gentle uh, brigata, as Boccaccio calls it, of the 10 young Florentines, uh, 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 Elect uh, to to uh, you know to segregate themselves in order uh, in order to escape the plague and many artists uh, have drawn inspiration from Boccaccio's book for their creations and performances during the lockdown. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, when I teach the Cameron um, using our digital age tool, the, the Cameron Web, um, I set up the class as a replay of the book. So my students and I replay the game of storytelling. And students choose the identity of one of the 10 young Florentine storytellers who abandon the city, ravaged by the plague, and take refuge in the safe haven of their country villa and the beautiful gardens telling each other stories as a pastime. So in a kind of role play, instead of simply telling their stories, my students interpret them, comment upon them from their point of view as contemporary young readers. And COVID has made this pedagogical simulation, you know, the analogy between the book and the virtual class, all too realistic. So what are we as 21st century readers you know, supposed to take away from these stories from another pandemic 700 years ago? So interestingly, scholars have suggested that the arts of the second half of the 14th century after the plague marked a return to religious motifs and a sort of more meditative or contemplative penitence, prone mood, a kind of collective mourning provoked by the awful experience of the plague. Yet, by contrast, in the introduction to the Cameron that you were uh, uh, reminding uh, before, Boccaccio practically rejects explanations of the plague as God's punishment for human humanity's sins. And even the plague as such practically disappears from the one under story. Indeed, the Decameron is the opposite of a gloomy book, with the exception of a handful of tragic novellas in the fourth of the ten days. It is a book full of life-affirming comic stories, an ode to life, love, and human survival instincts, in the face of death and destruction. So laughter is the true antidote that this literary therapy provides for both the sick body and the sick soul. And perhaps this positive life-affirming response is also what attracts people to the Decameron today. Yet uh, the Decameron is not merely an example of escapist literature. Some scholars consider the stories of the 10th day uh, that the storytellers tell each other right before deciding it is time to return to Florence as a parade of the very virtues, generosity, compassion, high-mindedness, necessary to rebuild the city from the ruins of the pandemic. And these virtues are the very opposite of the lower passions, lust, greed, and power thirst that are the subject of many of the previous days. So this is another parallel that contemporary readers may find compelling. And Boccaccio has a realistic but not entirely pessimistic view of human nature. Death is everywhere in the Decameron, but it is also part of life. And both are governed by what 
to humans appears as the blind rule of fortune, chance occurrences. It is an idea that also pervaded humanism and the Renaissance. This is a very modern idea that is antithetical, for example, to Dante's view of the afterlife as based on a system of punishment and retribution for the sins committed. Love is not a sin in Boccaccio's secular view. Indeed, if there is a pervasive sickness or malady in the camera, it is symbolical love sickness, something that affects all humans, men and women, and women in particular, as they are cooped up in their rooms while their fathers and husbands and brothers travel the world and are free to distract themselves. Indeed, the book is presented by the author as a gift and a remedy, an act of compassion towards these women who live in a kind of everyday lockdown, even in normal times. And they are the Decameron's uh, ideal readers. Uh, stories will help them evade, escape their captivity, and will teach them the ways of the world. Indeed, there are many female protagonists in the Decameron stories who travel widely and measure up to or often outplay men in passion, intelligence, and cunning. And for sure, there is a long-standing and open debate among scholars whether Boccaccio should be considered a misogynist or a feminist. He also wrote an encyclopedic book celebrating famous women, historical and fictional. But this is also the legacy of this uh, extraordinary book and Boccaccio's tongue-in-cheek style. So its truth is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, in the pedagogical setting I described before, I assign myself the role of the author. And However, in our class simulation of the camera, the author does not have the last word like in the book. As Boccaccio himself says in the author's conclusion to the Cameron, I quote, I acknowledge that the things of this world are completely unstable and endlessly changing, which could also explain what happened with my tongue, end quote. So storytelling is our only all-too-human way of making sense of this ever-changing world. This is perhaps the most precious takeaway from this extraordinary book in time of plague, time of pandemic. I love that uh, quote, actually, for, for, for the book. Um, I have so many uh, questions that I want to ask you about the theme, so I'm just going to approach them one at a time. There was an aspect in reading this book of you're getting, like, the secret truth. Like, these are the hidden stories that happened, how wild life really is. And so many of them are hilariously funny, um, have really interesting protagonists that are women or just not the sort that you would have. And then there was this other category of story, especially um, day three, which is stories about people using their resourcefulness to get what they want, um, where I find myself feeling like I was, you know, um, in the middle of, you know, the huge uh, Me Too sort of moment in the media, listening to stories about Harvey Weinstein and powerful uh, Italians from hundreds of years ago using their power, prestige, uh, presumed holiness to take advantage of people and, um, you know, have sex on false pretenses. Um, and I was kind of wondering about that theme because it, it got, you know, uncomfortable. Um, you know, these are funny stories essentially about things that to today's audience would feel like rape and things like that. And I was wondering, um, what's your thinking about that that theme and what it teaches us today? Yes, well, I... Uh, would go back to what I was saying um, before about uh, uh, Boccaccio being considered uh, either uh, 
feminist or a misogynist, and sometimes both. And of course, this is one of the topics that we uh, fiercely debate in class with my students. And uh, uh, clearly, uh, one uh, uh, thing that I, uh, you know, sort of invite my students to consider is the fact that, that we are talking about society of 700 years ago. And uh, for that time, so we have to understand the context, let's say, in order before uh, sort of uh, to give our judgment. At the same time, of course, these stories are very actual and very current, you know, so they propose some ethical dilemmas and, uh, and situations uh, that are provocative for, for a contemporary reader, for us, a particular young reader. So this is something that we cannot elude. The fact that there are stories that make us uncomfortable in the camera, certainly uh, uncomfortable given our current standards and our sensitivities, etc. And uh, and we have to understand, in particular, we have to understand what I was mentioning before. So the, the Boccaccio's ambiguity, <laughs> to some extent, the fact that many of these stories are told tongue in cheek, and that we never know whether is uh, providing these stories as a Example is a sort of a love manual, uh, tricks and uh, and uh, deception included for this uh, the women that he considers ideal readers, or is actually writing um, for the benefit of male readers who can uh, enjoy you know the stories perhaps from their point of view even more. So uh, the, I'm talking particular stories that involve. Uh, this uh, war of the sexes, if you like, and uh, but of course uh, the, the one of the things that uh, that we discuss and consider, uh, in addition to the historical context, understanding you know ideas about sexuality, the body uh, in the Middle Ages, etc., is uh, uh, is what is the final message that comes out of this story? You know whether uh, you know as I said before. Uh, the truth of the Decameron is in the eye of the beholder. So it's our interpretation uh, that counts. And uh, so one uh, important uh, dimension that you, that you uh, mentioned before is the, the importance of wit, uh, wit and language uh, as the expression of wit and uh, the capacity and the ability uh, to uh, you know, survive a difficult situations, even life-threatening situations, thanks to uh, linguistic uh, uh, ability and and quick witness, uh, if you want. Uh, the the fact uh, that women, in particular, are have to use these uh, qualities in order to navigate uh, the this male-dominated world, etc., uh, makes the reading perhaps even more interesting for a woman reader who would have, you know, perhaps some reservations about many of the stories, in particular how women are treated in many of the stories. But of course, let's not forget that in day seven uh, and eight, which is uh, and to some extent also in day nine, um, women, uh, are wi women are the real protagonists and they are the real winners in the, in the, in the war of sexes. So uh, from a gender point of view, uh, there, are, there are stories that are certainly meant to make uh, uh, men uh, or male readers uh, even contemporary.
my readers uh, uncomfortable. Uh, so I think there is a, a good balance. Whether Boccaccio is to be considered a feminist or a misogynist uh, is a question that I leave open for the readers. You have to read the book in order to make up your mind. I mean, it's absolutely disturbing to read funny stories about you know people being... <laughs> you know, taken advantage of that are so much like the scandals and the shock happening now. Um, I was thinking about one more, you know, generous humanist interpretation where what what seems to be the one always disastrous sin in a Boccaccio story is naivete. And, um, you know, this book is very much about educating uh, people, especially women, perhaps, about what happens uh, to be on their guard, to have their wits ready. Uh, not to get taken in by um, the many predators who are out there. No, exactly. And in fact, uh, this is, a, a, you know, why the Cameron requires an active reader to some extent. And, that, and uh, this is uh, perhaps the most important point to uh, try to make with my students. You cannot, uh, uh, you, you have to sort of take a, an active role in, uh, in, you know, reacting to the stories and interpreting the stories and uh, looking at all the points of view that these stories that sometimes present with uncomfortable but, and ambiguous situation can be, can be read. And I think uh, it would be too easy to absolve Boccaccio as a, uh, you know, as a, as a man from the Middle Ages uh, with all his intelligence and uh, uh, humanity and uh, his humanistic views from, uh, you know, from this, uh, from attitudes that are clearly, uh, you know, uh, you know, how, I would say obsolete to say the least <laughs> today, and are clearly disturbing to some extent. At the same time, uh, his misogynism is 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 not uh, um, uh, is not uh, you know total, and in fact, uh, uh, what is interesting, and there are stories in. Uh, particularly disturbing I'm thinking a couple that uh, I won't mention here you know but uh, but uh, you know there are other stories in which uh, in which the the opposite view is taken and so in the end Boccaccio's view of life and this uh, you know uh, uh, constant uh, warfare, if you wish, between uh, uh, the genders and uh, and uh, different different social classes, uh, the powerful and the, the humble, um, is is a realistic one. You know, I said before, it's not an entirely pessimistic one, but is as realistic as possible. And this, I think, is also his direct reaction to the to the plague, the context of the plague. In time of plagues, in a sense, life is is uh, is bare, is you know, is is presented, is naked in it, in all its uh, uh, its uh, unfairness, uh, its randomness, uh, and also uh, you know uh, the the need for us. As human, to be as resourceful as possible, and to in order to to survive. And uh, while the plague is absent, as I was saying before, as such from the stories, many of the stories, uh, you know, create context in which uh, this resourcefulness, this life or death situation, or you know, is is constantly presented to characters who have to who have to uh, you know to react and and. Uh, and find a way to, again, as I said, to survive or to save their honor, to save their bodies and, and souls as well.
Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about from a, a modern angle in that way is just that idea of representation, which is a big thing in Hollywood now. And, you know, just having characters that are diverse within there, like different kinds of people. And um, you don't like expect art to really show you all the characters that are, exist, you know, on the street or the real world. So I was really shocked when um, uh, the first story had, you know, a gay is what we would say today, protagonist. Like, I know that's anachronistic, you know, a, a man who mostly has sex with men uh, was pretty much how they thought of it back then, I think. But uh, there are all these characters that break the mold in ways you expect to be uh, censured, especially in a book this old. And I was wondering if you could just talk about the diversity of characters, why they're there and how they figure in Boccaccio's universe. Yes, no, I mean, uh, the story you mentioned is quite uh, representative and uh, quite provocative, you know, and the structure of the book as well, as the story of uh, Sir Chapelletto, which was one of the most fascinating characters uh, in, in the camera, and of course is gay and, and condemned and such, uh, you know, dismissed as such, etc. but is also uh, uh, most representative character is presented as the worst man who ever lived, is a counterfeiter, is uh, is a liar, uh, etc. And yet, in the story, uh, if you remember, he manages to through a false confession uh, and a false repentance to become a saint and be and be uh, worshipped as a saint. <laughs> and this happens in Burgundy, so not in Italy, because Italians perhaps are too clever to you know, fall for Ciappelletto's uh, lying. He's, uh, of course, uh, an Italian merchant uh, abroad. But... Uh, but um, but of course he manages to to become to to uh, to deceive a holy friar who is giving the confession and is about to die of something that could be the, the plague. As a matter of fact, we are not told exactly what is the illness that he dies for, but it could be one of the instances in which the plague is actually uh, in a in a sort of indirect way present uh, in the frame. Uh, I mean, in the fabric of the work. Uh, but he be he becomes a saint and is worshipped as a saint. Uh, uh, so Ceparello uh, is a Florentine name, becomes Ser and Saint Ciappelletto. Um, and so this, uh, Boccaccio, you know, sort of ironically at the end says, well, uh, the way of the lords are so many that uh, perhaps he chose this, the worst man who ever lived uh, as a, you know, uh, to become a saint precisely because he wants to, to save us all to some example, uh, to some extent. Now, you were talking about representation in Hollywood, and there were been several adaptations of uh, Boccaccio's book uh, uh, film, uh, and perhaps one of the most uh, famous one uh, and the most controversial one uh, is uh, by an Italian director, uh, uh, Paolo Pasolini was also gay, and uh, and actually gave a very interesting interpretation of of the whole book. And uh, for instance, he dismantled the structure of the book uh, Pasolini did in his 1970 film, The Cameron. Um, he dismantled it in the sense that he uh, it did away, he, he, he completely uh, ignored the frame story, the story of the 10 Florentine uh, gentle uh, women and men uh, who tell stories, and, uh, and, uh, and instead created a different frame story for The Cameron. Uh, and uh, the, the frame story for The Cameron is on the one hand, the, the story of Ciappelletto, 
the first story. And then uh, for the second half of the film, the story of Giotto, a uh, famous painter who was active in Naples and, uh, and was kind of a, uh, the model, the archetype of the modern uh, uh, realistic Renaissance painting, you know. Uh, and Pasolini, as a gay writer and poet and filmmaker, uh, identifies with both. He's the artist, as is also the worst man who ever lived. You know, uh, of course, uh, you know, considered such by society, persecuted by society as gay. Uh, you know, Pasolini was uh, was uh, put on trial several times. His work was censored, etc., etc. And he, uh, so he chooses these two uh, figures and, and sort of identifying with them. He plays the role of Giotto. Uh, in in the film, uh, in order to subvert to some extent the logic of, of the book, and uh, and also another thing that Pasolini does very interestingly is uh, is set all he chooses uh, only a few stories. Of course, in a film you cannot uh, you know um, tell all the one hundred stories of the book, so you have to select some of the stories and all all the filmmakers who have adapted uh, uh, camera have done so, but. Uh, um, Pasolini uh, chooses only the stories that take place in southern Italy and, and in Naples in particular. So he ignores also the Florentine back, uh, background of, uh, of uh, Boccaccio's book. Uh, and, and not only for the reasons that I was saying before, you know, that the fact that Naples is really where Boccaccio grew up and the Neapolitan society uh, it was what inspired many of these stories, etc. But also uh, because that's another way of subverting the sort of bourgeois uh, aristocratic uh, element that is present in the camera, these gentle women and men in their, you know, uh, country uh, villa gardens who tell these stories and sort of, uh, you know, are removed from the suffering and uh, and the outrageous uh, injustices and uh, that happen in the stories to some extent, and they tell these stories uh, tongue in cheek, uh, presenting them for the reader. And this is of course behind the Boccaccio himself, the author, uh, for their enjoyment and pastime. So uh, in his adaptation, Pasolini questioned precisely this structure that to some extent reflects this uh, uneasiness that you were uh, mentioning before. Yeah, that was an interesting idea because I think there's even like right in the introduction to the fourth day, he defends his the veracity of these stories and collecting and it made me think about, huh, these aren't necessarily invented stories obviously they're written down by him in a particular way and with a particular frame and storytelling but he seems to be saying these are collected stories um not uh, all invented yes no in fact i mean to some extent boccaccio is the codifier you know of the modern novella the short story that then you know, becomes uh, so important in the Italian literary tradition, but also in general, you know, inspires a, a lot of uh, uh, of a theatrical adaptation before, you know, film <laughs> was invented. For instance, many Shakespearean plays were, you know, inspired by, and of course, uh, the Canterbury Tales, uh, Chaucer uh, book was, uh, you know, directly to some extent inspired by by Boccaccio. So, but he's the codifier of the novella. So he's the one who writes down, and uh, and probably and. Draws, uh, from oral, or, you know, tradition as 
as well as many sources. And you know, scholars have been very busy trying to identify where the stories come from, or at least the you know the instant inspiration for the stories. You know, there are many traditions that uh, Boccaccio uh, draws upon in order to you know to produce this uh, 100 stories, or but of course adapting them to his own framework. You know, the Florentine and uh, time of plague. Uh, um, as, a, as a backdrop, etc. So, uh, to some extent, the realism uh, is always tempered uh, by the literariness. You know, is a very, very fine storyteller. Uh, Boccaccio has learned the lesson of uh, the classics. Uh, you know, the, as I was saying, you know, Latin and uh, and to some extent the Greek classics, etc. So, uh, historians, uh, you know, in particular the Greek historians, uh, that uh, are also the source of his. Uh, uh, of his introduction in which he describes the plague and describes the effects of the plague. So there is always a balance between this uh, realism and uh, you know, and Boccaccio's uh, writing and, uh, and this uh, incredible capacity to adapt uh, sources or, you know, and traditions to, to the current uh, uh, situation and make the stories Current made stories, uh, you know, relevant for for uh, for today, and this is something that is really comes through in uh, for readers of the book, even in the twenty first century. You know, these stories, although they are so remote, you know, in terms of what they describe and so, uh, the behavior, and as well as the cause of the Morris, etc., uh, they are also relevant. They touch uh, upon uh, some sort of a human uh, so core that is also relevant for today's. And that's what I try to do with my students. We try to sort of extract this human core and, uh, and uh, sort of adapt it to our current circumstances. Hey, everyone. We thought we'd take a quick little break from this awesome conversation. Hansa, thank you as always so much for, for leading that. You know, one thing that we really wanted to highlight for this in the fourth season of the We Croak podcast is the new Ask Death column on the, the We Croak website. Hansa, what's, uh, what's the latest with that? Yeah, so if you have a question about, you know, how to handle your anger at like a noisy neighbor or, you know, a friend that does this really annoying thing and you don't know how to tell them or just anything about life, uh, head over there to www.wecroak.com, uh, get connected to the newsletter and advice column and subscribe. And uh, you can ask all those questions and the voice of death will answer. It's based off of a really fun uh, stoic exercise that's supposed to bring equanimity called taking the view from above, but we're having a lot of fun with it. So uh, go check that out if you're enjoying the whole We Croak universe of content. What are some other ways people can uh, support everything we're doing with this podcast and the app? Well, of course, the Patreon and then We Croak Leap within the iPhone version of the We Croak app. And another great one for um, We Croak in very fun and unexpectedly bite-sized versions is the We Croak Twitter. Um, that's always a, a fun one, um, whether people are sharing screenshots of the app to us um, or talking about the podcast. And speaking of that, if you wouldn't mind dropping us a rating, we really appreciate those and read every single one. And Love any ideas to uh, to make it better and uh, more more compelling for uh, you all to keep listening. And uh, speaking of that, let's uh, let's keep listening to this awesome conversation. Wow.
one of the things I was thinking about is so much of this is comedic, of course, but day four um, feels really tragic and feels like a lot of storytelling that came later. I felt like I was uh, Romeo and Juliet by Shakespeare was ripped directly from these pages, at least in terms of its plot. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that day because it feels special uh, in the sort of the whole Decameron universe. Yes, absolutely. It is special. It is uh, sort of different from the other days. And uh, and this is uh, because one of the members of the Brigata, or the ten, uh, of the group of the ten Florentine narrators, uh, and is also one of the three men who are members of the Brigata. And all three, to some extent, are uh, Boccaccio's alter egos. You know, they represent a side of, uh, of Boccaccio, a side of Boccaccio as a lover in particular. Um, I said before that the plague is absent from many of the stories, from most of the stories. There are just a few instances in which you could, could make a connection with the plague in the stories. But there is another epidemic, uh, you know, that uh, pervades uh, the, the Cameron, and this is love sickness. You know, is a recurring motif. Uh, you know, egritudo uh, amoris in Latin, the malady of love. You know, love is is uh, ill to some extent, and uh, love sickness uh, uh, stands for the plague for in many instances. Uh, you know, and Philostrato, the king. You know, the, the tenth storytellers. Um, Formed this uh, this company, and uh, in order to have a more orderly way of uh, playing the game of storytelling, they elect a king every every day, uh, and the king decides the uh, the theme of the day and uh, and what you know the stories should uh, should focus on. And Philostrato is the sort of a uh, the. Uh, the revengeful lover is the love that, that they unrequited is suffered of unrequited love. So is really the most lovesick of all the three uh, men who uh, are alter ego of the narrator. Uh, uh, Dioneo is a sort of the lustful one, uh, and Pamphilo, uh, the other one, represents a sort of reason and is a, a sort of a, uh, you know is above the fray to some extent. More. A more meditative uh, um, uh, embodiment of the author, but Philostato is really has a grudge against women in particular because of his. Uh, so, so they he decides that uh, you know they are having too much fun, and uh, and the day four is the day of sorrows in the Decameron. But it's also the day in which the substitution of love sickness for the plague is more ap apparent, as you were saying, of course, the Shakespearean motifs, you know. Uh, I have a story in particular that I consider one of the most uh, uh, beautiful, although uh, sort of a, a un, um, sort of unrecognized as such in the Cameron. There are many stories, there are shorter stories, stories that have not, uh, that are not as famous as other stories. But this is, I find it particularly important, uh, uh, and I was thinking about it uh, right in the time, rereading the Decameron in the time of COVID. Uh, uh, so there are two characters, uh, if I may, you know, uh, tell briefly the, what the story is about. <laughs> yeah. So there are two characters, Simona and Pasquino, two young proletarians in love with each other. So and with another couple, they go to a garden uh, where they can be alone. 
So, and they really love each other. They are young and in, innocent and, uh, and naive, uh, and uh, they clearly do not belong to the same social milieu that uh, the storytellers are. And in fact, there is uh, also a part of, uh, of the story is this sort of distance between the storyteller, who is Emilia, one of the women in the Brigata, and uh, and these two characters, they really love each other, and so they rest next to a beautiful sage bush, bush a big sage plant. And Pasquino, the uh, young man, perhaps you know to clean his breath before daring to kiss his beloved, rubs some sage on his teeth and immediately falls ill and dies on the spot. So this is another instance in which the plague, to some extent, you know, uh, is uh, pokes into the into the book, although it's not clearly, uh, you know, thematically uh, the part of uh, or presented as the reason why Pasquino dies. It's un, you know, unspeakable this sudden death. Simona is the only witness, and she's accused by Pasquino's friends to have murdered. Him. Uh, you know, perhaps even witchcraft is suspected. So brought and fought in front of a judge, the only way that poor Simona, as Boccaccio says, crazed with grief and terror, uh, can defend herself is to bring his accuser and the judge back to the crime scene and repeat the ritual. So she rubs some sage and shows, look, this is what happens. I you know she rubs some sage from the same bush on her teeth and dies on the spot. So this sudden death without apparent apparent logical explanation is marvelous in the sense of inexplicable. There's a monster, as the Latins say, well, sort of monstrous event. And like the plague, exactly. Unexplicable. Uh, you know, you, there are no explanations, uh, either supernatural or, or, or even medical, that can explain the magnitude and, uh, you know, of the plague. Yet an explanation is given in the story, and I quote from the story, um, beneath the bush, a toad, I, I mean, I paraphrase, I don't know if this is anymore. Beneath the bush, a toad of quite remarkable size was discovered, and the bush had become infected with its poisonous exhalations. So Simona's innocence is recognized, but at, at the price of her life. Uh, and so and she and Pasquino are buried together united forever in death. And notwithstanding their humble social status, their love will be celebrated forever. And this is how this uh, a triumph of love in death is presented. Uh, it's, sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a tragic ending, according to Philostrato's you know, uh, you know, imposed theme for the day. But at the same time, it's a triumph of love over death. But so I see many analogies with the current pandemic. This is a perfect story for you know for for the pandemic. So the deadly infection again jumps from a rather unpleasant animal to humans. Unpleasant in the sense that you know in the Middle Ages the toad uh, and, and frogs were often represented uh, associated uh, uh, as uh, associated with lust in the Middle Ages uh, in, in sculptures and you know they were. Um, you know, uh, woven into the into the uh, the fabric of uh, of uh, lustful uh, figures, you know, that represented uh, luxury and so on. So, uh, contaminating a plant, sage, whose medical qualities 
were also celebrated in the Middle Ages. So turning, uh, you know, the toad into a symbol of nature's pollution, which is, you know, what the pestilence is all about. You know, and all of a sudden nature becomes unfriendly and uh, and uh, turns against the humans. So perhaps Boccaccio's overturning of the healing power of sage is also an ironic warning about unproven remedies, you know, in the stories. But so the most eloquent parallel I see with COVID, however, is that its victims. Uh, are the most vulnerable among us. So in this case, not old people in shelters, but poor young people in love, who in order to demonstrate their innocence, have only one resort, to die. So the two proletarian lovers, Simone and Pasquino, exceptionally entered the ideal garden of Eden, you know, the locus amenus the aristocratic, uh, of the aristocratic love tradition. So they pay dearly for it, but in, in exchange, their love will be immortalized. And we can pity them, have compassion for them appropriately, and our pity also absolves us to some extent. So this shows all the radical power and all the ambiguities of Boccaccio's literary vision. Wow, yeah, it's such a beautiful, beautiful story. And it kind of leads me to the soulfulness of this book. Um, But I'm really curious in that take of, like, of all the classics you could have dedicated so much of your life and teaching career to, why this one? <laughs> yes, good question. So, you know, I read a few stories of front of the camera in high school back in Italy, you know, where I grew up. And uh, as opposed to Dante, uh, you know, Boccaccio was not part of the official school curriculum, except for a few of its more edifying stories in <laughs> day four, in particular, you know, the, the tragic day. Uh, in a Catholic country like Italy, the book was considered an all-too-human counterpoint to Dante's divine comedy. You know? And in fact, it was Boccaccio himself who added the adjective divine to Dante's comedy. Boccaccio was a great admirer, of course, of, of Dante as a Florentine, uh, as a poet, and he wrote a biography of Dante, even read publicly uh, from the Divine Comedy and commented upon the Divine Comedy, uh, cantos of the Divine Comedy in public in the church in, in, uh, in Florence at the time. Um, but already in the 16th century, during the Counter-Reformation, the Decameron was prominently included in the list of books prohibited by the church, you know, more for its unflattering portrayal of friars and priests than for its explicit sexual content. Or perhaps for both, you know, since many friars and priests in its stories engage in behavior that would put them straight uh, in Dante's hell. So I then rediscovered the Decameron. So perhaps I was first attracted to Decameron as a young reader, uh, as a a counterpoint to the Divine Comedy that we had to read, uh, a close read in school and uh, and learn by heart, etc. Great book to learn by heart, by the way. But uh, I then rediscovered the Decameron when I began to teach it uh, here at Brown in the 1990s, the early 90s. And since then, I never stopped rereading. So, you know, another great Italian writer, Italo Calvino, once said that classics like the camera are books that one rereads even when one reads them for the first time. And every time one rereads them, it's like reading them for the first time. This is exactly my experience with the camera. It's an established classic that does not cease to surprise and speak to us anew every time I reread it with my students. And perhaps because of its ambiguity, because of its, you know, um, it reflects this uh, time remote from us, and yet uh, this humanity so similar to us, and, uh, you know, to some extent in a very realistic uh, way. I love that. And 
that actually brings me to the question of what is Boccaccio's obsession with um, the sex lives of priests, friars, monks, and nuns? <laughs> well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, clearly uh, there is a, a whole anti-clerical uh, thread that starts with uh, with Boccaccio. But I think there is a very, uh, perhaps more complex uh, uh, answer to your question. It's not just that he didn't like uh, priests and and friars and they considered the particular uh, as predators of uh, of the women he idolized as uh, his readers uh, and protagonists um, but there is a, a more complex answer to this question it has to do with uh, the role of the church uh, in uh, the time when this new mercantile society was uh, uh, you know, was being established uh, because to, from many points of view, uh, priests and friars were uh, the direct competitors or enemies of the merchants uh, to some extent. Um, for instance, uh, Dante uh, was uh, credited, was credited with the invention of the purgatory. Uh, by historians, you know. Uh, so, you're, of course, Purgatory is one of the three uh, cantos of the of the of Cantique of the Divine Comedy. One of the three realms that uh, Dante uh, visits in his journey to the afterlife, and it was a, a new uh, invention in the Middle Ages, and it was actually directly linked to economics to uh, the uh, the way that the church found, the Catholic church at the time, found to bank upon uh, indulgences and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the uh, forgiveness of sins uh, so that people would pay uh, for masses to be uh, celebrated in memory of their uh, um, uh, dead family members, etc. It was part, very much part of the devotion at the time, became very much uh, part of the devotion along with the cult of saints, etc. All things that, for instance, the Reformation <laughs> later aboard <laughs> criticized. Uh, so, and they became a way to extract, uh, you know, wealth from, uh, uh, from the people. And uh, this is one of the reasons uh, why, uh, you know, the whole construction of the purgatory and all the system of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, pain for indulgences, etc., cetera, uh, was, uh, was seen by merchants as a direct threat to the accumulation of, of wealth and capital, etc. But also there's another reason. If, uh, friars and priests had some sort of the, uh, because of their status, because of their celibacy, uh, etc., they were easily admitted into households and particularly became came in contact with women, etc. So they were seen also, as I said before, as potential predators as they were. And so Boccaccio, in describing them in the Decameron, strikes precisely these two aspects. You know, the fact that they took advantage of, uh, in particular, gullible women uh, and uh, seduced them, etc. Uh, and at the same time, uh, they were also sort of uh, uh, threatening the whole uh, new, uh, if you 
if you wish, capitalist, uh, and, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, structure of society that was being born uh, as a parasite to some extent of this of this new emerging uh, wealth producing middle class, etc. So he had some very good reasons to consider priests and monks uh, as, uh, as uh, and also there were other reasons that had to do more with doctrine, with, with Boccaccio's uh, uh, flirt with atheism. Later in life, he, he went back to, to the church and became, in fact, he repented to some extent of his uh, youthful sins, and uh, including the Decameron that uh, he wanted uh, uh, confident, a friend, to burn all his works before he died. Uh, uh, but thank God that was not that, that was not carried out. And uh, uh, so, but but at this time of his life, perhaps also as a consequence of the plague, uh, the evidence of the plague, you know, how to justify such a devastation? Um, um, you know, if if this is uh, is coming from God, uh, so he flirted with atheism and with with some very extreme ideas. Uh, although he never uh, openly uh, uh, sort of profess uh, an atheistic point of view in the, in the, the canon. It certainly goes very near in many stories to a sort of a, a sacrilegious uh, uh, attitude towards religion, you know, uh, almost mocking, uh, you know. And this is also part of his, uh, you know, uh, portrayal of, uh, of friars and monks as caricatures or or, or as, uh, you know, sort of this, uh, this cunning... Um, um, uh, you know, menaces <laughs> for for society. Yeah, it was really very interesting to me. And I, I guess I, I took it that, you know, in this book, what he seems to hate most of all is hypocrisy. And, you know, when you have a vow of celibacy, but you're still human, there's lots of opportunity for such figures to be hypocritical. Yeah. Yes, the, the, you know, friars and, uh, and monks are in particular, uh, you know, embodiment of this hypocrisy, etc. And so, uh, hypocrisy is the opposite of uh, is is the opposite of uh, of what uh, uh, Boccaccio praises as a, as a human intelligence, you know, and uh, and the human compassion also in the in, in the Cameron. So one. Kind of final question I wanted to ask you is if uh, any of our listeners, after uh, hearing this conversation, want to experience the the Cameron for themselves, what are some tips for how to read it, approach it, to get the most from the text? Well, I think just read it, you know, and uh, and this is uh, is is a wonderful, as I said before, is a book that is very modern, uh, even though it speaks to us from uh, from uh, centuries uh, ago and uh, and of course uh, one point of departure could be the the you know the parallel with uh, you know the the, the condition of uh, of uh, forced segregation of lockdown we have went through uh, this idea of in particular this idea of literature as a as a therapy you know as a therapeutic uh, power as medicine and uh, storytelling as i was uh, saying before is uh, you know what uh, the camera is all about and the the power of the healing power of storytelling to some extent uh, in front of the most extreme of the stream uh, you know uh, circumstances i think uh, in order to 
enjoyed the camera, you have to have to be as open-minded <laughs> as possible. You have to find a good translation, and there are several out there. You know, some are more uh, classically oriented. Uh, you know, try to sort of uh, uh, to make the Italian or Boccaccio uh, sort of uh, uh, resonate through through English prose, etc. But Boccaccio's prose was very modern. I mean, uh, Italian language has not changed much. Has changed a little, but not much. Not as much as uh, Middle English uh, or English has changed since Middle English. So, uh, if you if you know some Italian, you could even pick up the book <laughs> in Italian. But uh, but really with an open mind and uh, an open mind because uh, it is it is a book that uh, uh, you know requires. Um, from the reader, uh, uh, intelligence, uh, and uh, and uh, and in particular, in order to appreciate the humor that is also always hiding between the lines, you have always to catch Boccaccio's, you know, uh, tongue in cheek uh, attitude towards the reader. He's playing with the reader, sort of hide and seek uh, himself, and many of the stories uh, require, uh, you know, that kind of a, a proactive, uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, attitude in, in order to be enjoyed. Yeah, I love that. Be open. And it almost seems like if I had to take one overall message from the book, you know, be open, see what's really happening, honestly, uh, laugh at how absurd it is, and uh, live your life. Absolutely. And in fact, I think this is why the camera still speaks to us, you know, like, uh, you know, Every great uh, book, it uh, it has something to offer that uh, that we still sorely need, and uh, and uh, and as I said, you know, engage uh, the game of storytelling, you know, replay it <laughs> with Boccaccio, uh, get immersed and involved in it, uh, and uh, and perhaps uh, one day at a time, you know, ten stories at a time, or one story at a time, uh, the book, uh, you know, is not an overarching. Uh, sort of narrative uh, path, so you can actually uh, open the book here and there and read a story, and then go back to another story, etc. But if you want to appreciate the book in its entirety, I think you have to read it uh, from cover to cover. Well, thank you so much. It's really been such a pleasure to hear you speak on this work that I've really fallen in love with this year. And if any of our listeners want to learn more about you or your work with the Decameron Project, where should they go? They should go to www.brown.edu forward slash the Cameron. And uh, the Cameron web uh, is actually a resource for readers, not only for students and for uh, teachers who teach the Cameron, but for readers who want to know a little more about, <laughs> about the Cameron, its, its historical context, and perhaps some of the stories and the way that students, uh, generations of students since the 1990s have read the stories. And, uh, and I hope uh, you pay us a visit. And thank you very much for uh, inviting me to chat about my favorite book. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you again, Professor Massimo Riva, for leading us in a fascinating discussion of the Decameron. And my apologies, we weren't able to stick to our promised two-week cadence of episodes for this week. We will be doing back-to-back episodes in order to catch up and be back on our original track. So 
Until then, we'll see you next time.